Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. And welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined, as always, by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. In today's episode, we're discussing one controversial way of finding a sperm donor online. And what are the benefits of bringing your DIY donor to your doctor versus going at it alone? To get the legal perspective, we're joined by Deanna Elsner the Principal Lawyer at Advocate Family Lawyers. Diana has nearly 17 years of comprehensive experience in family law and has a special interest in IVF matters. Diana, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We talk about the legal perspectives, but in a little conversation we just had, you talked about how there's more than family law involved here. Yes, there is. There's a family law perspective. There's a criminal law perspective. And I think also there is a psychological perspective involved. And where are people finding the sperm? Online is quite common. And when we say online, is this a Craigslist thing? Is it a Facebook group? I think it is Facebook, possibly Tinder as well. There are a few places online where people go that have these chat groups set up where people are looking for sperm donors. Raylia, what are the health risks in finding a random sperm donor online? I prefer to frame it as what are the benefits of bringing your DIY donor to your doctor? And I guess the risks are kind of the inverse of the benefits in that you miss out on a lot of benefits. And that can impact your health, it can impact the health of your child, and it can actually impact the success of the enterprise of getting pregnant. Because Many women who choose to use a donor to conceive, and this is a a big big generalization, but it's what I've experienced in my own practice, it tends to be women over 35. There may be exceptional cases where younger women use donor sperm to conceive, but quite often the reason that women use a donor is either that they're in a same-sex relationship or that they haven't partnered with somebody who they want to have a baby with and they still want to have a baby, which is, I would say, the majority of patients using donor sperm. And the majority of those patients are over 35. And and when you are a woman over 35, unfortunately, you are past your peak fertility by a good 20 years, unfortunately. You know, it, it, it's troubling to think about it really, but we're kind of designed to get pregnant as teenagers. And that's when we're at our peak fertility. So when you're 35, 40, 41, nature has designed us at that stage of life to be grandmothers, not mothers for the first time. And so you do run into quite a few fertility barriers often. Things like, for example, your egg quality has declined to some degree, but also just by virtue of living life, we kind of acquire different concerns and problems. 
And so you might have a bit of endometriosis, you might have some fibroids, you could have a functional tubal blockage, um, there may be a polyp uh, or, you know, kind of a, a fibroid in the uterus or adenomyosis, think, things that might impact the way that would optimally get you pregnant. And when you see a doctor to talk about conception, it gives us the opportunity to optimise preconception health and preconception factors holistically, investigate gynecologically to look at things like your egg count, to look at things like your uterine and fallopian tubal health, and also your hormonal health and making sure that we optimise all other issues that might be affecting your chance of getting pregnant, like screening for celiac disease, checking your thyroid. So a lot of global factors can influence your chance of getting pregnant. It's also really important when you see a doctor to talk about your realistic hopes of conception per month because that might influence the way that you try and get pregnant. And also the age you are when you have your first child will influence your chance in the future of having further children. And if that is something that is important to you, I may counsel a patient more towards an IVF style of treatment where embryos can be frozen. So if they're a few years older in a few years' time, they still have a better chance of having a sibling for their child. So future family planning comes into it. Uh, And of course, you know, there's a lot of screening that comes into it, particularly when it comes to donors in terms of looking at genetic compatibility with your donor. If you're trying with a partner, you know, you want to have a child with that person regardless of the situation. And if there's genetic incompatibility where kids are at risk of serious disease, you may decide to, you know, go down an IVF pathway, use preconception genetic testing of embryos. If it's a donor, you would probably just select another donor. If you had a genetic major incompatibility, that meant your child would have a major risk of a serious genetic problem. So genetic screening, I think, is very important for donor conception. And of course, infectious diseases screening. So there are a range of STIs that are very prevalent in the community. Things like chlamydia, things like syphilis, and of course, blood-borne viruses and semen-borne viruses like HIV, hepatitis, CMV, cytomegalovirus. HTLV, there's a whole lot of viruses and and problems that can be passed on sexually. And, you know, some of those problems like chlamydia can actually cause scarring of the uterus and fallopian tubes that can actually reduce your chance of having a baby ever. You know, that can really severely impact future fertility um, from the point of view of natural conception. So it is really an important part of the process and a duty of care a doctor has to her patient when she cares for, I'm using the feminine because that's me, but when a doctor cares for their patient to check that they're not at risk of contracting those preventable diseases from their donor. And so one thing we do is screen donors rigorously and even quarantine sperm in order to protect the recipient, the the patient, uh, from contracting HIV that might be, for example, undetectable immediately but could still be in the semen. So, you know, we, we take all those precautions and we know what to look for and we know what to check for. Um, it's important for a woman at 35 to realise that when you're very young, your chance of getting pregnant per month is about one in five. And often with couples trying naturally, we say, don't worry if it takes six months, don't worry if it takes, you know, even up to a year. You know, if there's not a problem, it's likely to happen over time. When you're over 35, it's more like a fecundity, which is a natural chance of conception of, you know, 10 to 15 percent, you know, for example, at 35, not 20 percent anymore. And so when you have an arrangement with a donor where you are releasing one egg, trying at home with no help um, and not able to have the optimal frequency of insemination as you might with a partner and when you're trying naturally, 
um, around ovulation, um, we should be introducing sperm into the equation. Of course, part of screening a donor is also checking sperm quality. So, you know, there are some people who have sperm that isn't, you know, going to give you a chance of 10 to 15% per month. It might be, if they have a very low sperm count, more like a, you know, kind of 2% chance per month. So, you know, checking out and optimizing male factors is also part of a donor sperm assessment when, when I see a donor, donor sperm candidate. And there are some donors who might be a great donor, but their sperm's IVF quality only. And so that would point us down an IVF style pathway. And I guess in terms of, you know, my comment before of the majority of women seeking sperm donation being over 35, you know, one of the biggest assets you have as a woman over 35 is time. And you don't want to squander that because as you get older, your chance of getting pregnant per month goes down quite dramatically. And so you really want to get pregnant fairly quickly, you know, within a reasonable time period. And you don't want to have someone waste your time. From a medical perspective, that would be my, my major comments, you know, in terms of what, what I offer my patients when they come to consider sperm donation is I lay out there and investigate and optimise, but also, you know, talk to them about what their prognosis is and what their barriers are and what their strengths are and try to play a strategy to their strengths to optimally um, improve their chances of taking home a baby, which is the ultimate goal of treatment, uh, and also to make sure that they are safe. And as well as that, you know, communicate um, via offering them some supportive counselling. And often I would refer to someone like Diana to give them legal counsel as well in terms of the context of what having made a donor arrangement in these circumstances might mean down the track in terms of parenting their child and their child's right to information and also compliance with the legal system here in Victoria, which recommends uh, no more than 10 families be formed from the donation of any one person. Diana, if, if someone has found their donor online when they come to you, what's the process? How do you protect everyone involved? Yeah, so I have had people coming to me who have found sperm donors online. They see it as an easier process because they're bypassing, I suppose, the costs and bureaucracy of a, um, a regulated clinic. But these people are not often aware that without a legal agreement, the donors might be legally recognised as the fathers of children with rights to parenting arrangements and responsibility for financial child support. There, There are risks involved. It's very important if a person is considering an informal sperm donation um, that an agreement is written. They need to have a sperm donor agreement with a lawyer that sets out their intentions. It's extremely important and I would say that it is vital in the circumstances. It can be the perfect piece of evidence to explain to a judge if it came to that, that this was your intention and that this child was born through a donor agreement, not through a parenting arrangement or plan. And I would also say from a criminal law perspective, which is not so much my area, I have had questions in this regard. Meeting privately to obtain semen is risky business. I would not advise doing that. I had a client who wanted to meet the donor in a hotel room and 
there was a big problem. She attended and the donor wanted to have sex with her rather than provide his semen via self-insemination. With that, you run the risk of being assaulted, rape. It's very dangerous. You don't meet up with a stranger privately. Then there's the psychological perspective too, I would say, of you meet this person online, you don't know how many people they've seen before, you don't know how many people they've inseminated, you run the risk of possibly your child having up to 30, 40, 50, 60 half-siblings in the future. And then there are other problems with that, such as incest. That could pose a huge, a huge problem in the, in the future for your child. And I would also say that informal sperm donation is often harder for the recipient and for the child um, to contact the donor in the future because um, the information's not recorded and it is unregulated. So, Diana, could somebody online have a profile and misrepresent themselves and not necessarily be who they say they are? Definitely. It's, it's a huge problem. And I guess it's it's a problem as well. I mean, if you're speaking to someone on Tinder or a general chat group, you don't know if they're lying to you. You don't know if they're married. You don't know their history. Whereas if you go through a clinic, you know their medical history. You know everything's been screened beforehand. You wouldn't want to just trust someone you don't know. You mentioned just before about the reason that people might do this is the costs involved. Sperm donation in Australia is altruistic. What are the costs involved? So the costs involved, I guess, are the cost of seeing a doctor and if your doctor works in conjunction with an IVF unit and you're using sperm through the processes of artificial insemination, IUI or IVF, that that is done in the context of medical treatment as opposed to if you were to self-inseminate at home or if you have sex at home with a partner to get pregnant, there isn't a price tag on that. I would say there are other potential downstream problems and, and, you know, the financial costs of treatment can help you very much prevent those problems. It can also help you get pregnant because when I help patients with something like an IUI cycle, which stands for intrauterine insemination, I do other things in that cycle to optimise their chance of actually conceiving. So one of the examples is I often use a little bit of super ovulation. So often I use some medication in the cycle to help them promote more than one egg's maturation and development and and that is associated with an increased risk of twin pregnancy but most of the women I treat are over 35 and what happens is that egg quality declines with age and so not every egg is going to make a baby even if you are 21 not every egg makes a baby you know if you use a bit of super ovulation in a responsible monitored way you can release several eggs and the majority of my patients who get pregnant with IUI will be having one baby, but some will be having twins and that's an accepted risk of the technique that we use to improve the chance of conception. I also get the timing perfect because when I do IUI, I monitor with ultrasound and I make sure that I know exactly when ovulation is going to happen. Sometimes I give a trigger to get it even more accurate and I always use luteal phase support to make sure that a woman's chance of conception is, is at the max. That is an example of ways that in a medicated cycle, all of those things do incur cost. You use medication, there's cost of medication. You attend ultrasound monitoring, there's cost of ultrasound monitoring. Perform the procedure, there's cost of the doctor doing the procedure. So that's an example. And of course, part of any unit of practice 
regulated by RTAC, which is the, the regulating body that regulates um, fertility units, uh, requires both donors and recipients to undertake formal counselling and documentation of consent. And, and those aspects also do, do incur costs, but they also protect you. It makes sure that you know, you're safe and you're protected. It's very clear the relationship is very defined between recipient and donor and that is a legal protection. So it's not like you pay for the same thing in a unit and you get the same thing for free in a, in a private arrangement. You do get the sperm, but you don't get any of those other things. I want to say that in South Australia and Victoria, donors going through fertility clinics are allowed to donate to a maximum of 10 families, including their own, and each family may have more than one child. So you know that um, they're allowed to donate to a maximum of 10 families. But again, you use online sperm donation. You don't know how many families they've, they've provided their, their gametes to. One nice thing about bringing a known donor to be cared for under your, your own doctor is that you can use any type of treatment that is suitable from a medical perspective. Mm. Uh, you can make sure that you don't impact that donor in terms of convenience because we can freeze sperm and have it on hand Mm. so the donor doesn't have to come when you're ovulating Mm. and if they can't do it tough Mm. you know the sperm is there and we can use it without inconveniencing the donor so you know you have more control and in terms of changing goalposts it's exactly like Diana said for example that person might have had a chat to their donor about self-insemination and then on the day they might say, well, have sex with me or you're not getting the sperm. That makes the recipient patient very vulnerable. Um, When you entrust your care to a doctor and your clinic, that you are safe and protected and that will never happen to you. Uh, I've also heard of, um, of some cases of donors having, unfortunately, malicious reasons for donating sperm and motivations. Mm-hmm. There, Not everybody is a wonderful person. There are lots of really wonderful people and amazing altruistic donors out there, but there are some people who are not. And, you know, in America there was a donor example, for example, a legal case where a donor knew they had a serious genetic condition and they willingly and knowingly still donated without disclosing that to a huge number of women. <laughs> And um, people do have sometimes different psychological reasons that we might not understand for wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. I by no means want to say that that's the majority of donors. The majority of donors are beautiful people who just want to help other people. But, you know, these, these cases do occur. Well, the problem is it's unregulated and there are no barriers. It's, it's dangerous. I, th- I think it, you're, you're entering into a dangerous area if you do consider it. And there are many, many risks that you would not have if you went through a fertility clinic. Um, it's an unregulated informal market that has no barriers. Raylia, you mentioned before that you would involve Diana or a family lawyer like Diana at some stage during the process with a person who has a known donor. At what stage are they referred to Diana and what preparation do they need to do before they see her? Well, with a known sperm donor or known egg donor or embryo donation for that matter, so it's not just about sperm, sometimes a couple have made embryos in excess of their family needs and want to donate them to their friend who's struggled and been unsuccessful in IVF with their own you know, eggs and sperm. 
So that happens too. And egg donation also, you know, sometimes a girlfriend sees her friend go through IVF and fail again and again because she's got a poor prognosis and says, hey, what if I give you some eggs? You know, so it's not just about sperm. But all of these arrangements out of love, when you do create a child, you've got to understand it's not just a, you know, five minute do something nice for someone. There are going to be consequences down the road for that child. And the consequences uh, are a long, a lifelong really. And it's very helpful, I find, for women and couples to speak to someone like Diana because what she can do is outline all of the issues that they probably haven't thought of and make sure that the intentions are clearly documented and that everybody from the outset knows what they're getting themselves into and involved with and that everybody is happy with that because I think that would be a really important part of, I guess, future-proofing against conflict as relationships evolve. And I don't compulsorily make every single patient go to Diana, but I would suggest that it would be a good idea. And I find that most patients are actually very keen to do it because they want the legal protections in their future with their child to be robust, even with a known donor, and especially with a known donor, because they might have a relationship with the child from the outset and defining the boundaries of that relationship is very important. But I'd love to hear Diana's perspective on that too. When people come to me for um, sperm donor agreements, I advise them that it's very important to set out your intentions. It is crucial evidence, it's vital evidence to have at the beginning and it's an extremely important piece of evidence to have in the future to explain to a judge, um, if it came to that, that these are your intentions when the child is born, that you've gone through a donor agreement, this this, uh, legal agreement, and not through a verbal agreement or through a parenting arrangement or plan. There there can be problems down the track where the donor does change their mind. They want to have more involvement in the child's life and that can pose a big problem for the recipients, for the partner of the recipient. And this agreement can avoid all of that happening in the future because you've got that piece of evidence Because technically a donor could come and ask for custody of a child, couldn't they? Well, that's right. Yes, that's right. They may say, if you don't have the agreement, they could just say verbally, I'll I'll give you my semen. I don't want to have any involvement with the child. You can send me a few photos here and there, but I really don't want to have any involvement with the child. And then look, when, when the recipient gets pregnant, possibly the donor could change their mind and then when the child's born, when they see their baby, they could, they may consider themselves the father of the child and they may want more involvement. And this can cause a lot of psychological problems and uh, family law issues for the recipient, the recipient's partner, their family. And it's really, they're not, they're not protected. And the father could be, it's always what is in the child's best interests in the in the Federal Circuit and and Family Court of Australia. It's always what is in the child's best interest. 
if a judge thinks that the father should have some involvement in the child's life, that they want to be in contact with the child, that they want to have some involvement, it would be in the child's best interest, then the judge could order that they be considered the father and that they have shared um, shared contact, shared access, shared responsibility with the child and it, it poses a, a real problem. And this is if you don't go through that, that legal agreement, that sperm donor agreement. Because what if you do have that agreement and you do have the court recognise that the person was a donor and let's just say the relationship between the recipient and the donor, I mean, they probably didn't know each other very well because they just met online. You know, that can happen in the best of relationships. You can meet someone online, think they're pretty good and then realise they're not for you later down the track when it's when we're talking about a relationship. Um, so, you know, they might not want that person in their life. They might not want their person having their child having to go to them on weekends and things like that. Mm. If it's a donor and it's a documented donor status and the court recognises that, then, you know, the donor could not demand that. And that's really, I think, what most people wanting a, a donor arrangement would, would feel is, is in, in their best interest as a family. That's right. It's an important piece of evidence to have. It sets out your intentions from the beginning. So even if down the track the donor does change their mind, and I suppose that could happen, you still have that piece of evidence you would provide to the judge and that would be considered and would show that these were the intentions of the parties in the beginning. It would be more difficult for the donor to then have that involvement and, and be seen as that father figure if they did say in the beginning that this was their intention, they didn't want too much involvement in the child's life. It would be very hard to go back on your word. It's like preparing an affidavit and swearing in the affidavit that you're not going to do something and then going back on your word and then changing your mind and deciding you want more of an involvement. You can do it, but it's unlikely you would be successful because that was not your intention in the beginning. You've signed this legal agreement, you've received independent legal advice from a lawyer and it would be very hard to to go back on your agreement if those were your intentions from the beginning and you've received advice on that basis. Something we maybe wouldn't have considered having an impact, um, but I wanted to know, has COVID changed how sperm donation is done? I think it definitely has because, for example, two and a half years ago in my practice, to, if I wanted to refer a patient for a clinic sperm donor, there was no wait list. There was not necessarily hundreds of donors, but there was certainly what I would describe as plenty to choose from and immediate access. And what happened during COVID affected things that were not an emergency, things that were considered elective. Um, you know, surgery was shut down multiple times. That was a, a massive problem. In terms of donors, just altruistic donation, if, if you were stuck at home, working from home, not allowed to see your family, in lockdown in Victoria multiple times for many months, I guess even the most altruistic person didn't have sperm donation on the top of their agenda. And all the events that classically we used as IVF units to, in inverted commas, sperm drives, like to attract donors, weren't happening. They were cancelled. So less opportunity to go out and, and meet and, and proactively attract donors. We can't pay donors to donate sperm. It's illegal. So you have to 
you know, kind of look for people who might want to help someone as their motivation. And that, that is, I guess, another advantage of using sperm through a, a clinic in that the people who have donated, they haven't been paid for their donation. They were truly altruistically motivated because otherwise why would they do it? And I guess another risk of DIY sperm donation is that, you know, kind of black market paying for sperm probably happens. I think COVID has changed the landscape a bit. I think COVID has exacerbated the problem as uh, border closures prevented many patients from travelling overseas or interstate to access regulated treatment with donor sperm. I I think COVID did exacerbate the problem due to the border closures and then people going online looking for for other ways to, to conceive. Diana, do you have any examples you can share with us of like case studies that you've seen? Oh, I had a client who came to me. He didn't have a sperm donor agreement. He was the donor. He matched with a couple. This was back a few years ago. He told them he wanted to be kept in the loop about the child's milestones and involved in their life from the moment they requested to meet. He went through a, n- a number of health checks. He donated his sperm to the couple by self-insemination and their first attempt at artificial insemination was actually successful. He then, when the recipient became pregnant, he started feeling attached to the baby a few months into the pregnancy and told the couple he wanted to play more of an uncle-like role in the baby's life from the moment the child was born. And he told me that they were very unhappy about this because he changed his mind. They didn't have an agreement. He changed his mind. They did send him some photos of the baby, I think, when she was about three or four weeks old, and he sent her some gifts, some some clothes, and and then the contact just stopped. They just stopped. They didn't want him to have any involvement at all. He wanted to be put on Varsha's donor conception uh, register so his biological daughter could contact him in the future but he told me that it wasn't an option under Victorian law because there's no formal documentation of his donation that that's what he was told and that's right we had to go through the court system it was a very expensive process for him and in the end he did actually get to spend some time with his daughter so it did it worked out well for him in the end but it was a very expensive process for him the recipient and the partner of the recipient and their family were, were very upset about it. It caused a lot of friction in the families. Again, this is a problem of not having an agreement to begin with. So, Diana, can I just unpick that example just a little bit? If that agreement was not in place and that, like, let's just say if that donor hadn't have pursued action through the courts and with your assistance, could those parents never have told their child about the sperm donation? Could they have withheld that information for the whole life of the child and would there have been no record for that child to have a link back to the donor? That's right. There there would be no record of that donor providing that sperm. And if the recipient didn't want to tell the child about her father, there would be no way for the child to, to, to contact the father. There's no registry. There's no, there's no way of knowing who, who the father is. 
Because there, there has been a lot of work and the reason that our legislation is what it is is it focuses on the rights of the child and there have been a lot of cases where children have been very, very upset about not having a link back to their their biological donor and not having that availability to to find out that information as an adult. And, you know, there's also been a lot of problems in families when through other means children work it out. Like they might work it out because their blood group's different yeah. from their parents or they might work it out because they do, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry.com and realise that they're not related and that can then bring up that trauma of dishonesty and, and secrecy. That's right. In the relationship and fracture that relationship with their parents. So there's a lot of downstream ways. I think in our age of clinical genetics and genomics, there's, it's less of a secret because there are ways and means of finding out. You buy a kid on the internet and a few days later you send them a bit of saliva and some DNA and you go, hey, my parents aren't actually my biological parents. You're just causing the- problems for your, for your child slash children in the future. So what's your recommendation? You need to have formal documentation. You need the legal agreement, but also I think it's important for the donor to have some formal documentation of of his donation. You want, when the child is 18, for the child to be able to find out who their father is if, if they want to in the future. Thank you, Diana, for joining us. As always, it's fascinating having you contribute to our podcast. Our recommendation is that whatever your intention, the first port of call for donor conception is to see a fertility specialist and have an informed chat. 100%. And we see a lot of people at Women's Health Melbourne in the situation and are well-versed in in helping women, men and couples to achieve their family goals. We know all families are different and there's a, a variety of different ways that families are formed and it's our pleasure to help in any way we can. And I often do refer to Diana. Diana, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? My office is Advocate Family Lawyers. My email address is info, I-N-F-O, at advocate, A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E, familylawyers.com.au. And you can find Diana on the socials as well at Advocate Family Lawyers. Thank you, everyone. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Thank you.